Dr. Anissa Riley is a true success story. She received her doctorate in spite of suffering from PTSD from issues like those she discusses on her show. She has embraced the wounded healer archetype as described by psychologist Carl Jung. As a result, her soon-to-be-released book, The Wounded Healer, Turning Life's Messes into Messages of Hope Form Violence to Victory, is bound to be a bestseller. Hey everyone, welcome back to Lady Empire. I have such an amazing guest here with me today, Dr. Anissa Riley. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and an honor to be with you today. Awesome. I'm super excited. We have some really amazing topics that we're going to dive into. So I first just want to start off with you talking to us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing, and sort of where you grew up. Okay. Well, first off, I was born in the 70s, the early 70s. So I'm a 70s baby. And I think all of the 70s babies out there can understand why it's important to say we are 70s babies. Um, We were born in a time where, you know, America was changing from the civil rights to all of these different things happening. But, um, you know, you see on the Internet, those children who were born in the 70s were the last ones to play outside type of situation. (laughs) So that is reminiscent of my childhood. I played outside. I jumped double dutch. I ate ices. You bought from the local mom in the neighborhood. You know, you had these wonderful outdoor experiences that um, shaped who you are. But in the midst of all of that, what seems to be like wondrousness, if that's a word, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a lot of um, trauma in my life based on my mom's depression. It's not until I was older that I really saw it as depression, but when you're in it, you just think, you know, it's cruelty and just being mean and not um, how to be a parent. Unfortunately, my dad was murdered when I was six months old and I was the love of my mom's life. And I think that morphed into depression and she just really didn't know how to come out of that in a very healthy way. Um, In those times, you know, therapy wasn't something that was normalized in America, more or less in the black community, you know, getting therapy, getting help, mental health and all of that. So unfortunately, my mom, you know, went into a place where was comfortable for her and what she knew. And it translated into physical abuse and mental abuse and emotional abuse. Um, And being young and being um, a child, you don't understand that. All you know is that you are in a place where you are scared, you are terrified, you are afraid. Um, So that's how my childhood was shaped in those really traumatic emotions. But juxtaposed to that, I was outside playing, having a good time, going to school, you know? So those two roads kind of shaped me. Um, And those lives happened in New York City, as well as in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, And as I grew up in those two cities, and then eventually we moved back to New York, is when um, I really began to 
see that life began to play itself out in the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having this life where I was shaped in fear and depression and abuse now became something that was translated in my social environments. Um, And then you operate from a place of survival. Mm -hmm. Um, But thanks be to God, um, as I was an early teenager, I got to a place where my mom was like, "Uh, can't do this anymore. So bye-bye. And as an early teenager, no longer living with my mom. But as I was saying, thanks be to God, I my best friend's mom and her husband took me in. And in my early teenage years, I started living with a whole other family. Um, and they loved me back to life. So those are my early formative years. That was a lot, but that was wow. those formative years. I know. Wow. I mean, I can't, I don't even know where to start with all of the questions that I have. Um, and I'm so sorry you had to experience that, um, but also happy you experienced joyous parts as well. Um, so talk to us a little bit about as you grew older and you sort of realized like, oh, what happened in my childhood actually wasn't okay. It actually wasn't right. When did you sort of realize that and sort of take action on that? I mean, did you ever seek therapy? Did you ever get any sort of counseling or help for what happened in your childhood? Or talk to us a little bit about um, the action you took later on in life. Yeah. So um, when you have a series of failed opportunities or failed, um, you try to do something and you can continue failing, failing. There has to come a point in your life where you stop and say, what is going on? For some people, they um, place the blame on external forces, on things that happen on the outside. Oh, it's the man. Oh, it was them. Oh, oh, oh. But for me, I had this epiphany where I realized that I was the constant. Yes, I had this person do this and this opportunity do that. But what I realized is that I was the constant in all of this stuff that was happening that wasn't great for me. And I wasn't living the life that I knew that I was destined to live. Like I had this innate knowing Um, And so realizing that and coming to terms with that is what really kind of started me on this journey of trying to figure out what is it in me that keeps finding me in these precarious situations? Um, Did I go to therapy? Yes. But was therapy for me? No. Um, I saw different therapists and in that what I couldn't reconcile or even want to be attached to was when they said, so let's talk about what happened in your childhood, yeah. right? <laughs> like, so what happened in your childhood? And I was just like, mm, no, nah, we're not <laughs> yeah. right? um, because for me, it was like re-traumatizing myself and I just wasn't comfortable with examining those places, those dark places mm-hmm. and being very emotional. Like, I've always been a person who I felt that if I get into this emotional abyss, I would never come out. Mm -hmm. Um, That was just something for me, not to say that people don't need to go to therapy. I recommend therapy. It just wasn't my path. It just wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And because it wasn't for me, I needed to do something else. So I started reading a lot of books. 
Um, I'm an avid reader and I started reading a lot of self-help books. And then in the self-help books, the author would recommend another author and I would read the next author. And then combined with my faith, I'm a, I call myself a God girl. So between reading books and looking at people who I admire, oh, that's the life I want to live. Oh, I like what you're doing. And patterning myself after that. Um, leaning into my faith and then getting people that I trusted as coaches to help me call me on my stuff, mm. you know? So that's the route that assisted me and helped me get to a place of reconciling all the stuff that happened to me, not just through my childhood, through my teenage years and my early twenties. Um, so I can get to a place of saying, Hey, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm well. And I have something to offer other people who may need some assistance as well. Mm -hmm. I love that so much too. And thank you for being so honest because I think a lot of people um, have really strong beliefs on therapy, whether it's beneficial or not. And I'm so happy that you shared, um, you know, that you tried, it wasn't for you and you kind of had other options too. So I love to hear that you found these other options and, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what you're currently doing and um, what excites you now. So let's talk a little bit about your role as a principal in New York. Um, tell us a little bit about this role, this school, what area it's in, um, and any sort of you know major challenges you've really experienced as being a principal. Okay. So yes, I'm a principal in New York City, um, and it is in a community where it has been labeled the poorest congressional district in the nation. Wow. And if people really understand what that means, it means like we're, if you think poverty, no, we're under poverty, right? Um, the poorest congressional district in the nation. So, you know, there are a lot of factors that come along with poverty. Um, and so I service babies from the eight, early as 2.9 years old, all the way up to 10 years old. And for me, school was my safe haven when I was going through um, all of the traumas that I've just previously talked about as a child. So school was safe. I enjoyed school. I remember just wanting to always be in school. And so because I had that experience, it was important for me to recreate that for the students that were, I was, I'm blessed to serve as the, as their leader. Right. And so I um, was appointed to a school that had lost its way educationally, um, nurturing in a nurturing way, just lost its way. Because when you get caught in situations as tough as those, sometimes you do lose your way and sometimes you forget your why. Mm -hmm. And so being appointed to this school, it took us some time to get back to our purpose, get back to our why. There were people who were getting milk from the golden calf that had been set up at the school level, you know, so we went through a lot of stuff. And um, when you are tearing down idols and you are pulling back the veil, the person who's that does that becomes the enemy to those people who are profiting. And so people went on, um, 
you know, a journey of assassinating my character, of just coming for um, me to be removed. But when you know your why and when you know your purpose and when you know that you have been assigned to something, then it gives you the power, the strength, the nerve to continue on. So here I am 16 and a half years later, um, I'm still the principal. Um, the school has turned around. We're back to now. The staff that I have now are taking the bull by the horns, as they say, and being the leaders that they were called to be. Um, our focus has shifted. Our scores are um, rising. And even in this coming out of the pandemic, if we are coming out, if I can say that, you know, we haven't lost our um, momentum. Um, our students haven't lost their way. And even our teachers, when they speak to their colleagues at other schools, they're like, no, we, we've been teaching for the last two years. Right. You know, we found a way. And so I'd say that we're a school. Our tagline is we are the solution. So we will find a way to service children in the poorest congressional district in the nation because we understand that education is their key, is their ticket to make their option, to make options available for them based on their zip code. Um, so that's what we do. And I'm just so excited about that. Yes. Oh, I even got chills listening to you speak about that. You just have such passion and such excitement for it. Um, and I'm so glad that you were able to make the shift in that community and, you know, really give these kids an opportunity. Um, and you are the leader of that, which is just amazing. And um, I want to know sort of how you were able to pivot when this pandemic came to be. Um, and they came to you and said, you know, you can't have in-person school anymore, figure it out. Um, walk us through that process of you trying to manage all of that and how you were going to be able to still give these kids an, an education and keep them engaged in that. So one of my mentors, um, leadership mentors, had said to me a long time ago, which I felt dear, and I'm sure anyone that's in leadership probably is familiar with this statement, and it's not something that um, is just my mentor said it, but my mentor said to me, the minute you step into a leadership position, start training your replacement, right? Mm -hmm. Because you never know what's going to happen, and if you truly love the organization, you won't build it on your personality, but you'll build it on a system and anyone can step into the system. We see Bill Belichick, who is, you know, the one of the greatest coaches of all time with the New England Patriots. He built a system. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I offer to leaders, build a system. So because I was told that and because I believed in that and because I um, organized my leadership around that we were able to pivot easily. But not only that, I've also been a leader that says, I'm going to be a leader who always is innovative and tuned into the divine. So always praying and always seeking knowledge and always um, seeking wisdom. And so about three, four years prior to the pandemic, we had started infusing into our classrooms um, online learning. Right. Oh, good. We had already started that. It was slow 
you know, it was slowly happening because a lot of our teachers didn't come from that world, weren't really aware, but we had started like mandating it. Okay. So you're going to do at least one of your subjects has to be one, something that they do online. At least one of your homework assignments has to be something that the students do online. Um, At least the kindergarten students have to be able to know how to get on and do a center that involves them getting online. Like we made these little small changes. And that was also because um, I'm a reader. So I'm like, what is, what is it, what is it trending towards? What is the business world doing? What do they need our kids to do? How can we put that into elementary school? So that was something that was part of who I was part of what I did. And so it was funny, um, January of 2020, I was on a medical leave. So I already wasn't at the school, but as I said, we already these systems in place. And when I was due to come back off of medical leave is when everything shut down. And so because we had already like these practices in place and our teachers were already committed to our students and our systems were in place, and this was a true test if our systems were strong, the pivot just landed into our systems and our systems caught it, caught us. Right. And saved us. And we had, we were ready to, we were ready to keep moving. Right. Right. All we did was tweak here, tweak there. With some students that were six old, so well, I didn't want to get along. But because of, we had mandated at least something that you do, they had a little bit of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And then my newer teachers um, were ready to st- catch the older teachers and like, this is what you do. So everybody banded together. So for us, fortunately, a couple of years prior, we had already started the process. So it was easier for us to make the pivot. Um, and we also allowed the pressure of community to put pressure on those teachers who didn't want to do go on um, have synchronous instruction. They were like, well, I'm just going to assign, you know, assignments and have the students pick it up. But the community started putting pressure on those teachers. And fortunately for us, we had 100% synchronous instruction throughout the entire time. So that helped us. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I just, I think a lot of us also think about too in these, um, you know, communities that have extreme poverty is we hope, especially at the beginning of the pandemic is we hope these kids can still earn their education. They can still have access to all of these resources. Um, I think a lot of people also wondered, um, you know, in communities with extreme poverty is how are they getting access to internet? How are they getting these laptops or iPads or whatever technology they need to use? So can you talk to us a little bit about what your school and your community sort of, um, what was the plan for all of that and how they were going to get access to these resources? Being in New York City, we were, I guess we were fortunate um, because our government, our city government, put went into quick action and uh, had a relationship with Apple. And the next thing we knew, they were just shipping out iPads, shipping out iPads, oh, right? Parents, parents were able to go online and order a device. And, you know, um, we had grants prior to the pandemic where we were trying to become a one-to-one school, a one-to-one laptop school. And so mm-hmm. we were 
um, giving out our laptops from our school. And then in the midst of this quick step action that the city took place is when they began to realize that were areas like ours where there wasn't any internet available, Mm -hmm. right? And so that went into action. We had cable companies that were like, okay, we're going to provide you with free internet access in these particular areas. And then New York City went back to the drawing board and started ordering um, um, Wi-Fi enabled LTE iPads. Mm -hmm. So that way it could help those particular students. Um, So we were fortunate enough that our government partnered with the educational system to assist with that. We were also able to buy hotspot devices. Um, so there was just a lot of handholding and partnering and every all hands on deck mm-hmm. during our particular time in New York City. So um, I'm going to say that we were blessed and fortunate in that way that all hands were on deck. Now, I think if we had to do it by ourselves as one school, it might have taken a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But because there was a call to action from the city, we were able to kind of close the gap quickly. Right. Oh, that's so good to hear. And I think maybe a lot of different areas across the United States or even across the world didn't really have that connection with the government. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad that your community was able to do that and really provide for these students. So that's awesome to hear. And um, I want to switch gears again and talk about your show. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Ask Dr. Riley. So talk to us about how this got started, why this got started, um, and who can really benefit from this? Okay, so um, I've always been in entertainment. You know, when you ask someone when they're five years old in kindergarten, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? My answer has always been an actress. I always like telling stories. I always like bringing stories to life. I love to see the joy on the audience faces when they can connect with the character, connect with the story, and see the outcomes. That's since I was little. Like, I loved that. Um, getting older, you know, my life took a different turn and I became an educator, but I've always had opportunities to still kind of be in that field, which speaks to my heart. And so um, now it has turning that direction more so which now allowing me to kind of be in there more of a full-time basis. Um, so the show came about because I started to write my memoirs right? Started to write my memoirs because I got connected to the term, the wounded healer, which is an archetype by Carl Jung that talks about those of us that have been wounded are now using our wounds to heal, right? Right. Um, And so I connected to that. And so I started writing my memoirs, but in the midst of writing them, um, I started having like emotional, um, Attacks because I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, re traumatizing myself again. So I had to take a break from it. But during the pandemic, um, my executive coach, my executive leadership coach, Dennis McKeezy, Dr. Dennis McKeezy, um, now he just got his doctorate, Dr. Dennis McKeezy, um, brought all of the principles together that he works with across the globe. 
And while we were um, all working from home, he allowed us to be in community with one another to support one another. And then he started asking us, what do you want to do for yourself? Like you guys give so much to the school, to the families, to your community, to your students. How do you pour back into yourself? And so he challenged a lot of us, challenged me. And I said, oh, I can I can do a show because everyone was now, you know, doing stuff on Zoom, doing stuff online because we were at home. Mm-hmm. And so I got in my spirit to use my traumas as the basis of the show where people had to be triumphant after the trauma, but how do you be triumphant in the trauma? And then what do you do with it? And so that is what I decided to do to take all of my traumas. That's the theme of every season. Have guests come on the show that talk about that particular theme, but what are they doing? What are they doing with it? So it's not just here it is. This is what happened to me. No, here it is. This is what happened to me. And this is what I did with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important. What did you do with it? Because I want to make sure that people who've experienced trauma, like we talked about, or know someone who's experiencing trauma or help to avoid people to experience the trauma, that you don't have to be paralyzed. You don't have to get stuck, but you can do something in it and have peace. And you can leverage it to be successful to help others. Right. Oh, that's so exciting. And I think a lot of people would be able to relate to that. Um, And I want to just ask you, you know, what, obviously the content is really related around trauma and past experiences, um, but just to give our listeners here some sort of idea of what's actually being discussed and sort of where you're finding your guests, um, you know, are these past friends, colleagues, um, you know, and what's what are some of the topics that are being discussed on your show? So season one, the theme is sexual trauma. And so um, we discuss all the way from um, rape to incest, to date rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first guest, um, she talks about not being um, molested in the intrusive physical sense, but being sexually mishandled. And so she terms it sexually mishandled. So to give you an example, sometimes when you were growing up, especially in the 70s, they were like, oh, give Uncle Bob a kiss. Oh, go sit on Uncle Bob's lap. Or Uncle Bob will smack you. Oh, you're getting bigger. Or your aunties or your uncles were like, oh, look at you growing up. You you maturing. Your bosoms are getting big. And so those kinds of words and those kinds of interactions, as innocent as they may seem, are sexually mishandled because it how it lands on you, right? Right. How it lands in your psyche, how you begin to see yourself sexually, how you begin to see yourself, how you begin to understand your femininity as a woman or even as a young man. Because I also have a gentleman on my show who talks about being sexually uh, uh, molested and raped at a young age. And a lot of men really don't speak about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and because my guests were so freely willing to give, we were able to talk about now, what do you do with it? So some of my guests are friends. Some of my guests are friends of friends. Mm -hmm. um, And some of my guests happen to be people that the editor or the producers of the show know and would say, oh, this guest would be really great for the show. 
Right. Um, season two was around loss. Um, so we talk about, you know, being a widow. We talked about um, stillbirth. Um, I had a guest on season two who whose child was two years old and was at daycare. And due to the daycare provider um, improperly administering infant CPR, cracked the rib and she lost her two-year-old, you know, so these are like major stuff. Right. But how did the person now use it for the good of everyone else? Wow. I mean, that's just amazing. And I think a lot of our, some of our listeners out there would be really interested in this. And is this a podcast or what sort of um, form does this show come in? Where can our listeners um, go find this show? Where can they listen? So the main place that you can see the show is on YouTube. So I have my YouTube channel. So it's Ask Dr. Riley on YouTube. That's the main place. But the show um, fortunately has been on Fox Soul. Um, season three was on Fox Soul. So as soon as it finishes on Fox Soul, um, it'll go to my YouTube platform. Um, the show is on Dame Dash Studio. So if anyone knows Dame Dash, um, he's a mogul in the music industry. You know Jay-Z, you know Dame Dash. You know Kanye, you know Dame Dash. You know a lot of big musicians, you know Dame Dash, right? Mm-hmm. And so Dame Dash has has become a big brother to me. So now it's on his streaming platform. Um, so those are the places that you can see it. Um, on So hopefully everyone goes and watches it and shares it and gleans some knowledge and some wisdom from it. So um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I think a lot of our listeners can benefit from that. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that maybe not a lot of people are comfortable sharing that they've experienced this, or they know someone who's experienced this. So you just coming on here today and making that available to them, I think is extremely helpful. So thank you for that. And I just want to finish out with a fun fact about you that I do with all of my guests. And so my fun fact is who has been your greatest role model in your life and why? Greatest role model. That's difficult because at different points in my life, I've had different people speak into me and they have been words that have attached to my heart and my spirit. Well, I will say that I'm going to say my mom, not my biological mom, but my mom who um, opened up her heart and opened up to her her home to a very broken teenager. I was 13 years old, very broken, very lost teenager. Her and her husband opened up her home, took me in and saved my life. And I think if, and I know, not that I think I know that if her heart wasn't as big as it is, then I don't know where I would have been or where I would be because I was able to not be on the streets, not be homeless, not be bitter. Um, doesn't mean that I still didn't have any trauma that she helped me through and and she stayed with me and loved me and um, was no nonsense, treated me just like one of her own. She is my mom. Then that is my dad. And so I have to say, um, Miss Valerie James, I love you so much. Thank you so much. 
Oh, that's amazing. I love that so much. And I'm so happy that you were able to find this family and have them welcome you into their home. Um, I'm just so glad for that. So, um, so where can we find you on social media? Where can we follow what you're doing and see what you're working on? Yes. So my website is www.axdrreilly.com. I spell it because Riley has so many different spellings and mine is not the most common of spellings, but go to my website. Um, on IG, it's axdrreilly. Sometimes you have to put a period after the doctor. Twitter, ask Dr. Riley. Um, Facebook, ask Dr. Riley. I try to make it as easy as possible for people to find me. Um, and if you have difficulty, just try putting a period after the doctor, DR period. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything you have shared today. Thank you for opening up your life and your heart to us and sharing some topics that um you know, are a little difficult to share, um, but we are all super appreciative that um, you were able to share those. So thank you so much for everything. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy and an honor. And I just want everyone to realize that they too can experience triumph and trauma. It's not that hard. You just got to take a step forward. 